The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. So I realize that uh, for some of us, the notion of getting older is pretty distasteful. We are, by and large, a culture obsessed with youth with staying young, with looking young, and and honestly, even with acting young. Though I do believe firmly that if adults stopped acting like children, the world would be a better place. Two-year-olds are ruled by their feelings, not adults, but that's just, that's a different story. Um, I find, though, that I actually like getting older. Um, I grow a beard in part because I am proud of all of these gray hairs. I've earned these. And so getting older has come with some amazing benefits as well. I mean, because I have made more trips around the sun, I got to celebrate 21 years of marriage to my beautiful bride earlier this month. Yes. And that only happens as you just stay on this rock orbiting the sun. Um, Getting older with her has led to a richness of relationship beyond anything I ever imagined as a teenager. But getting older does have its costs. Um, Some I expected, right? I don't bounce back as quickly as I used to. Last weekend, I was playing 18 holes of disc golf with an old friend who was in town. And the next couple of days, I kept wondering, why is my shoulder so sore? And then I was like, oh, right, I'm not 25 anymore. I can't just go shoot 18 holes and expect to not have to pay for it. Lesson learned. But what I didn't expect were the non-physical costs. I mean, I've got to write everything down, otherwise it's gone the moment my attention shifts. Eileen can tell you, our front office manager, I regularly will show up in her office having forgotten why I went there in the first place. And I'm just two doors down from her office. I used to read a book and bam, it was in there, locked in. Now it just kind of leaks out all over the place. But even more surprising is the well, the word I've been using is the ossification or the hardening a little bit of my heart. I just don't seem to feel as intensely as I used to. The stuff that used to get me super amped up, it just doesn't anymore, or at least not in the same way. And it pains me to admit it, but that extends even to my walk with Jesus. Now, don't mishear me. I still love and I still want to know Jesus more, but there's a... And I recently found the best word to describe what's kind of going on in my heart. It's a dullness. It's just a dullness towards Jesus. Now, I know some of it's physiological. All right, so if there's any teenagers in a room, young adults in a room, in case you didn't know, right now, like your brain is in this high state of plasticity, and so you feel everything so intensely as you're making new connections and having new experiences. Everything is just more when we're in our teen adolescent years, right? Even into young adulthood. Crushes, like when you have a crush on a guy, on a girl, like that burns super intensely. Food tastes amazing. Like it's not just good, it's like, wow, this is the best thing I've ever had. Music, just, it's better in your teen years. Why do you think so many of us older people still prefer the stuff we heard as a teen? Like our tastes kind of get locked in for a lot of us, right? Or, Or why is it that you can still sing a word Sing every word to a song from your teen years that you haven't heard 
in decades. Um, I was driving across Texas on the way back to Colorado. It's just me in the car. And as I'm in there, I'm like, you know what? Let me listen to some 90s country music because I had a phase. Um, and I, I swear, I haven't listened to these songs in literally 15, 16, 20 years. I could sing them all. As I'm going along, Reba, all those. It was scary. Um, but we go to camp, right? As a teenager, we go to camp or we go to a, on a missions trip or we go to a retreat and we have this encounter with Jesus that's just awesome. And, we, and it's, it's powerful. It's life-changing. And as we get older, that heightened state begins to settle down. Now, there are benefits to that. Don't get me wrong. But the experiences we, we have now just don't seem to make as big an impact. That said, I don't know that that's enough to explain like the ennui, the acedia, or just the plain dullness in my heart. I, am I alone in this? I mean, I don't think so. Because um, I mentioned I, I recently found the word that describes my current state, and it came from a little book that I'm working through. And here's what the author, Michael Iaconelli, has to say. He writes, the critical issue today is dullness. The good news is no longer the good news. It's okay news. Christianity is no longer life changing, it's life enhancing. Jesus doesn't change people into wild eyed radicals anymore, he changes them into nice people. And he ends that section with this If Christianity is simply about being nice, I'm not interested. Now, later in that same section, Iaconelli will add, A.W. Tozer said a long time ago, culture is putting out the light in men and women's souls. Now, I read that, and I'm just sitting on my deck looking out, and, and it struck the deepest of chords in my heart. I felt stirrings long dormant. You see, an encounter with Jesus used to ruin lives. So, what I mean by that is suddenly people were selling all of their stuff in order, to be, in order to provide for others, or they were leaving everything behind to move to a new town and just to share more about Jesus. Christians lived markedly different lives. They lived it unashamedly, unapologetically. I mean, these are the guys that said, I will share everything I have with you, but I'm not going to share my wife. And it's a sexual ethic that no one in that first century, second century, third century even knew about. They called them atheists because they refused to worship any God but the one true God. These are the guys that because of their faith, because of their belief, they didn't just sit there and appeal to Caesar to change the laws on infant, uh, infanticide. Instead, they went out into the fields and rescued the little girls that were left behind to be exposed and die. They are the ones that stayed behind and cared for the sick when plagues rampaged through their city and everyone else headed for the hills. The Christians stayed behind and they got sick themselves and many of them died. But they did it because they were bright-eyed, fearless, bold, passionate, grateful, loving, kind men and women who followed Jesus wherever he went. Now here's the thing. Iaconelli wrote his words in 1998. That's 25 years ago. Tozer wrote his comment in 1961. So this is not new. Spiritual dullness, acedia, ennui, whatever you want to call it, it's got to be faced by each generation. And now it's just kind of my turn as a middle-aged adult. Or maybe it's our turn as this generation. 
So what causes it? Well, maybe Tozer's right. Maybe culture is to blame. These days, everything around us is like, is like it's tuned to keep you keyed up, right? We're constantly living in life at like a seven or eight out of ten. Uh, psychologist Deidre Barrett uses the term super normal stimuli. The stuff that we experience now, it's not normal anymore. It's super normal. It's above that. Like, for example, food. Food just can't be good, normal food. Every bite has to punch you in the mouth with flavor, right? And so extra salt, extra sugar. Why do you think we love junk food as much as we do? I prefer eating out than eating at home. And there's a reason for it. It's just got tons of like, good stuff in there. It's super normal. Uh, we have this instant access via our devices, and it keeps us on edge uh, as we wait for the next ping or the next text, the next email, the next call. And it, and it gives us the illusion that, man, I'm really productive. I'm really doing things. I'm living the full life. I am surprised by how busy we've gotten. And, and so when you're living in an eight or seven or eight out of ten, like the stuff that used to rock your meter with awesomeness, well, now if your meter's already here, it's just a blip when you experience these other things. All that level of activity and attention, it just dulls us. And so maybe it's culture. Uh, maybe it's distraction. Uh, I, I have never been diagnosed with ADHD. I used to be very, I mean, school was easy for me. I could, st I could focus on things for a long time, but nowadays, it's like every five minutes, I need a new fix of something else. And, and it's just weird how we've trained ourselves to be distracted. Maybe it's comfort. I, that's my big one. I love being comfortable. Anything that's, that causes me to have to work hard is difficult at times. Um, and, and, and we as a people are the most comfortable, wealthy, entertained, secure generation ever in the entire history of mankind. And yet we are bored out of our minds. We're dulled to life. We're dulled to Jesus. Maybe it's external. Maybe it's internal. And, and that's why uh, I'm so excited that we're walking through one of the accounts of Jesus's life together. Because we have slowed way down to focus on Jesus and walk through the gospel of Mark. Today's account from Jesus's life, um, I have found incredibly helpful in, in helping me to address the dullness, giving insight into the real problem and the only solution. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to be reading, or we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Now I want you to go there, but my fear is that many of you are really familiar with this story. And if I tell you that this is the story of the four men and the paralytic, you're going to be like, oh yeah, I know that one. And instantly your attention kind of backs off a little bit. Oh yeah, I know what it has to do. I know all the parts of that. And so I'm scared because overfamiliarity can be dangerous. Because you can miss the tension and the drama and ultimately the whole point of the passage. And so, so though I believe the word of God is sufficient in itself to teach, and I do, I want you to keep your eye on this passage I want us to walk through the passage a little bit differently. I want us to engage our holy imagination. So we're going to, I'm going to walk through this. I'm going to give it to you a little bit differently. I want you to keep there. Make sure you know when I get off book and, and get into imagination land. Um, but let's take a moment to ask God to open our eyes and to see anew. So pray with me. Lord, we come now to your word. And for many of us, this is a very familiar story. 
Spirit, I ask that you would open our eyes to see Jesus in the midst of all of it. Make it new again in our hearts that we might feel and we might know what it is you want us to feel and to know. And so we give it to you. We just ask, please, Spirit, show up in a big way right now. Amen. So I want to do this in a medium that we're all a little bit more familiar with. I want to frame it like a movie. Uh, again, keep referring to the text because I'm going to go off book a little bit, not a lot, but just to, I want us to engage that imagination. And so here we go. The scene opens with an aerial shot of a simple square home. It's a literal box, maybe one or two stories high with a walled courtyard around it and stairs going up the side of the home to the roof. And as the camera pans down, you can see that the house is packed. People circle the building. They're huddled near windows and around the door. We continue into the house, and there is, there's no room anywhere. There's just people everywhere that you look. And they're all turned inward, focused towards the center. And there in the large room, seated on a chair or maybe a stool, is Jesus speaking and teaching because in that day, people with authority sat down to teach. The crowd sits on the floor around him, and they're lined up along the walls. They're hanging on his every word. And then the camera cuts now to an exterior shot where you see a group of four men hurrying down the road. And they keep hitching their shoulders and adjusting their grip. And we notice that between them, they're holding a mat with what can only be a man on it. The camera zooms in and you can see the man grimacing as he's jostled about. Perhaps the group even has to stop now and then to adjust and make sure he's still on the mat properly. Something is obviously wrong with this guy, but you really can't tell what. He, he can't walk. No one would choose to be carried like that. Maybe even he's been bound. His arms and limbs are wrapped tight to keep him from flying everywhere. There's a flashback to give us more on these men. They've heard about a guy named Jesus, a guy who can heal, and he's in Galilee. So they say to each other as they are with their friend, maybe, maybe Jesus can help. And so they've been traveling possibly for days and miles, just missing him at some of the towns, but they finally end up at Capernaum. And they're headed towards Jesus. They have to ask, where is he? And they're walking down the street towards the house. Or, or maybe, maybe they're locals. Maybe these guys are from Capernaum and an accident just happened. But they've seen Jesus work miracles and they've got someone here who just had that accident. He can no longer walk and he needs that miracle. Whatever the backstory, when the camera draws close on each face of the guys carrying this man, there's determination, there's hope, and there's expectation. They approach the house and they see the crowds and they begin to move to the door, but no amount of excuse me or jostling is working. And so one of the carriers, in my mind is the quick and clever one, he notices the stairs to the roof and he pulls the team in that direction. So they mount the stairs, careful with their friend, and when they get to the top, they set him down and then they get to work. Sticks and mud and straw are ripped up and tossed to the side. Does anyone notice downstairs? I mean, they've got to at some point as the noise intensifies and debris begins to fall and light shines through. But does anyone go up to investigate? Uh, how did the men know where to make the hole? Does Jesus stop teaching? 
does Peter go up there and demand they stop destroying his home? You know, Mark doesn't give us these details, which we think are super important, but he doesn't. And that is telling in itself. Instead, the camera cuts the interior and you see a man slowly lowered down, probably with makeshift ropes fashioned from the four men's cloaks. They didn't plan on destroying property that day. They didn't come prepared for that. But down the man come and comes and Jesus approaches him. He looks up and he sees the four guys up there and they are looking down in eager anticipation. One of the guys whispers, just wait, here it comes. Another guy's in the corner, please let this work. Jesus takes his eyes off the men in the roof. He looks down at the man on the mat, and he says with compassion in his eyes, my child, my son, your sins are forgiven. There's a record scratch on the soundtrack. Wait, the men look at each other puzzled. What did he just say? Perhaps one of the other guys, again, the quick and clever one from the rooftop says, hey, Jesus, I know he's lying down, so you may not be able to tell, but he can't walk. His limbs don't work. So there's this confusion and muttering and these whispers. Why did Jesus say that? Friends, this is the point of drama and tension in the passage. This is the, wait, what moment? And when you find those in scriptures, you really got to lean into them. Because it's in that an unexpected turn that God has something for us. Why is Jesus' response so off to us? Well, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they're going to have one problem with it, which Mark focuses on and which we'll get to in a moment. But for the four guys, for the paralyzed man, for the crowds, like they all hear Jesus' statement and they think, but Jesus, that's not what he really needs. That was probably your thought too. No? Just me? Okay. Jesus, he needs healing. He needs to be able to walk. But is that true? Is that what this man really needs? Jesus didn't think so. You see, Jesus leads off by addressing the man's greatest problem, his point of deepest hurt and need, and apparently the man's sins are that very thing. So how is sin the greatest problem? What is it? And so the word Jesus uses here, your sins are forgiven, is the broadest of words that we use to translate as the word sin. It stands in for a few different ideas from the Old Testament, words that mean like to miss the mark or to go astray, to go wrong, to err, to transgress, to rebel. In each of these concepts, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Or more specifically, there is God's way, which one either follows or deviates from. And so in particular, for the people that Jesus is speaking to, sin is transgression, which is a word that we're not very familiar with. We don't use it a lot. It's a great word, though. Um, but it also just means breaking the commands of God, stepping over the lines God has drawn. And since these commands, these lines, come from the king of kings himself, sin is rebellion against God. Now, later on, Jesus will reveal that the ways that we err, our acts of disobedience, our sins are actually just outward expressions of a posture 
of the heart. The heart is set against God, and so that makes us transgressors. That makes us sinners. We're not people who sin, we are sinners. But why is this a problem, right? God's way is one way, why not have a bunch of different ways? Well, when Jesus talks about sin, we're just, let's just stay with Jesus. When he talks about it, like in Luke 15, sin is almost always a going out from the Father's house. It's a leaving, a departing from the Father's house. It's a turning of your back on God, and so necessarily that means separation from God. Elsewhere, Jesus will reveal that sinners are thrown out of the house, and outside is where they're asked or where they're put, and outside is where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, we aren't merely turning our back on God with sin. We are turning our back on life. And only death and darkness awaits the one who has done that. Why is sin the greatest problem? Well, it estranges a person from God. It is rebellion keeping a person out of the family of God. It is, it's killing us in this life and in the next. And so that is a far greater issue than whether a man can walk or not. And friends, this is our greatest problem as well, whether we recognize it or not. Now, I know that not many people talk about sin or sins anymore. It's not good for people's self-esteem. It's an old, outdated, archaic notion that only backward, irrational people believe anymore. Progressive people have moved beyond sin, particularly since the actions that were once labeled sin are now brave actions worthy of praise. And unfortunately, friends, the church has gone along with it. Instead of sin, we talk about our failures, our shortcomings, our addictions, our mistakes, our bad choices. We've softened the language around sin. We've lessened the seriousness of acting in ways counter to God's commands. It's not that bad, we think, as while we gossip and badmouth, I'm sorry, tell the truth about a coworker. I gotta get what's mine, we think, as we lie, I'm sorry again, exaggerate on our insurance claim. Sin is a minor inconvenience at best. It's not hurting anyone, we think, except that sitting in front of that screen watching that pornography does hurt all kinds of people. It hurts you, and it inhibits your ability to, make, to form romantic relationships with other people in the future. It, and so as a result, it, it affects your future spouse or your current spouse. Again, it inhibits your ability to form satisfying romantic relationships. And the research indicates that that goes with having multiple partners as well. The more partners you have, the harder it is in the future. So it hurts you, it hurts your future spouse, it hurts your current spouse, it hurts the person you're watching. Because porn drives the demand for sex trafficking, that person may not be doing that by choice. That's someone's daughter, sister, mother, brother, son, father. Your sin affects more than just you. It does hurt people. Why do you think insurance rates go so high? It's in part because people abuse the system for their benefit or they've forgotten what insurance is there for and are just in it to get as much as they can. Why do you think the world system is just so broken? Our sin, our individual sin, affects far more than just the individual. Or maybe we think, it's, I'm, not, I'm not that bad. And you know what? If I knew you, I'd probably agree with you. 
The problem is it's not my standard that, that matters. It's not even your standard that matters. It's God's standard. He's the one that created you. He created you and everything else. And so his standard of what is right and wrong, his way or not his way, that's what matters. And I believe that that begins to touch on the root of all of this. Ultimately, I believe that we think so little of sin because we have misunderstood the one we are sinning against, the one we are offending. See, if I steal from a friend, I mean, it's a big deal, but we could probably work it out, right? It's going to be at most an interpersonal issue. But if I steal from the governor, that's a much bigger deal, isn't it? If I attempt to overthrow the government, the consequences are going to be severe. Or maybe we have a hard time with that one because we live in this nation where we don't have kings. But like, imagine you were in Iran and you tried to steal from a government official. What would the consequences be? If you tried to assassinate the Shah, what would the consequences be? You see, the severity of the offense is not merely in the action, but the one we are offending. And so what happens when you steal from or attempt to overthrow the king of kings, the creator of the universe? And here we are thinking our sin isn't a big deal, but all sin from the smallest white lie to the greatest infraction of the law is ultimately a rejection and rebellion against the infinite, eternal, only God. And so I know that people like to say things like, well, it's better to party in hell or reign in hell than to serve in heaven. But you know, that assumes the next life is like this one, where there's some good and some bad. I always find it funny when people say, why do good things, or why do bad things happen to good people? When I think it's more likely to ask, why do good things happen at all? If there is no God, if, if there's just nature at red and tooth and claw, like why do good things happen ever? But we have good and bad here because of the common grace of God. So if you are then completely cut off from life, from goodness, from mercy, there are no parties. There is no ruling there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. You have rejected the God who made you. And that's where, guys, God doesn't send anyone to hell. He gives you what you want. You don't want him? You don't have to have him. That's what God says at the end. You don't want me, you don't have to have me. But that means being outside the house. We think our sins aren't a big deal but they are, and they're killing us. So Jesus reorients us to this man's and, and our primary problem here in this account from his life. And if sin is our greatest problem, then what are we to do about it? Well, Jesus already gave us the answer. He says, my child, and I love that, he's my son, this term of deep familiarity and intimacy, your sins are forgiven. Do you hear the heart, the compassion, the invitation? Go to Jesus. He is willing to forgive. But the question then is, can he do it? Is he able to forgive, to heal, to restore? And so if we were concerned with the fact that Jesus got the problem wrong, there is a group in the room concerned with the solution Jesus provides. So as the movie reel starts back up, off to the side, several men have questioning looks, perhaps murmuring to each other. And then there's the, the voiceover of their hearts, which says, why does this man speak like that? 
he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So if Jesus' statement is the point of tension in the account, this question is the central issue. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, according to passages like Exodus 34.7 and Isaiah 43.25, forgiveness is always God's divine prerogative. Only God can forgive. Now, prophets and priests could declare forgiveness on behalf of God, but Jesus wasn't a priest and no sacrifice had been offered. So who is this man claiming to be able to forgive sins? Well, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he turns to those men in the corner and he says, why do you question these things in your heart? Then he turns and looks at those in the house. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus turns back to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man does just that. The friends on the roof erupt in amazement and praise. A roar fills the house as people celebrate. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Forgiveness is real. Forgiveness for your sins is possible. And I love that Jesus does not dismiss the skeptical critics and doubters. Instead, he provides clear evidence to back up his claim. Which is easier? There's no way to prove when someone declares sins are forgiven. And so instead, Jesus does the harder thing. The thing that everyone can see and touch and experience, he heals. And in so doing, Jesus powerfully proves his authority to forgive sins. But it's not only authority. Because the scribe's question still matters. Who can forgive sins but the one God? Only God can forgive sins. Therefore, if Jesus can forgive sins, then God must be among us. Jesus is no mere man, no mere prophet. And here in Mark chapter 2, right at the beginning, he makes it clear. He is God the Son. And so here's how C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's man, uh, money? Asinine fatuity, which I had to look up because I don't know the word. Forgive me for the salty language. It's extremely stupid foolishness. Bring that, let's, let's bring that phrase back. Um, so asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. And yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken. The Son of Man, Jesus, is God the Son. And he can forgive your transgressions, your rebellion. And as those of us who know how the account of Jesus ends, we know that God the Son will go to a cross and he will die in place of sinners so that forgiveness might be complete. 
Jesus, God the Son, would experience the death we deserved so that we could once again come into the household of God, the household of the Father. And once again, this Jesus would back up his claim to be able to forgive with a powerful miracle, this time by rising from the grave. So friends, we know Jesus is willing to heal. We've seen that time and time again, even last week with the leper. And that moment of compassion as he touches him, I will. Now he's shown he's not only willing, but also able to heal not only our physical infirmities, but our greatest hurt. He's able to solve our biggest problem. He is willing and able to forgive. Sin is terrible, but Jesus is greater. So a long time ago, in scouts and as a backpacking guide, uh, we had to know first aid for obvious reasons. And so in order to keep fresh on our first aid knowledge, we would practice these scenarios, right? Everyone would leave the room. The instructor would set up a situation using a couple of the students. Then he'd call us back in. And so all of us would rush in and we'd begin to assess the situation and provide aid. And I can't tell you the number of times we failed to take care of the patient, the victim, as we hurried to bind up broken bones while missing the gaping wound on the back that was quickly causing the victim to bleed out. We can get so focused on the superficial hurts and miss the real problem that's gonna kill you. But even worse were the times that we'd be treating for shock or the like and we missed the snake bite on the ankle or the spider bite on the arm. So even as we treat what we can see, the venom is inside killing the victim. And so friends, too many of us are playing with vipers. We've gotten comfortable with our pet sins and they're killing us. They're killing our passion and joy and relationship with Jesus. We are turning our backs not only on God, but on life and that's why we get dulled. That's why we get dulled to Jesus. Sin has lost its terribleness for Christian and non-Christian alike. You see, when that happens and when sin isn't a big deal, forgiveness isn't a big deal. The death of God the Son isn't a big deal. And suddenly the good news becomes only okay news. That's where spiritual dullness comes from. I know it from my own experience. I've gotten comfortable with my besetting sins, started buying into the world's value, spending money I don't have to keep up with people I don't know, sinking into the couch, and letting my life be a passive watching rather than an active adventure. Jesus had become or has become an enhancement to my life, a means to a better life, not life itself. And the only right response to this malady is repentance. Repentance and return. If you don't yet know Jesus, maybe this is the first time you've been confronted with your rebellion against God and the consequences awaiting you. Jesus is inviting you to come to him for forgiveness and restoration. The word says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the invitation. He is willing and he is able to forgive and to bring you into the household. But maybe you're still a bit away from believing. But you know what? A simple hope is all that's required. The men and the paralytic, they went to Jesus with just a hope. They didn't know what he was going to do, and he answered that little act of faith with so much more than they expected. 
It's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. And Jesus is greater. But maybe you're here and you've got a a particular sin that you've put in a a special category, right? You've heard about Jesus, maybe even say you're a Christian, but your life has been more defined by that sin and your rebellion than by life in Christ. Jesus has the same invitation to you even today. Repent, turn away from that. Let that go or give it to Christ. Get rid of it, run to Jesus and be restored. And then for those of us who do belong to Jesus, we have trusted him, we know we belong to him. It is time, friends, to put away those pet sins that we put in that different category from everything else. It's time to stop murmuring about our stumbling and begin making war on the sin in our lives. I mean, we can take it to Jesus who can forgive. And listen, those who belong to Jesus, we know that sin's power, it's already broken in our lives. It was broken when Jesus got a hold of you. The guy who used to do that thing or that other thing, he died at the cross with Jesus. She died at the cross with Jesus. And sometimes God completely takes away the thought pattern, the cycle, or the desire to do that thing. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes it stays behind as a thorn in the flesh. And empowered by the Spirit, we can make war against sin and for holiness. Like Jesus, did anyone else think that they'd be further along by now? Like I I came to faith like 20-something years ago, and I was like, surely I'd have some of the stuff figured out. Stuff I'm, I'm wrestling with for the past 20 years. The Spirit... Still working on it, and there's new stuff that keeps coming up. Like the Spirit's just ruthless and pointing out the things that are in my life. Because in the end, it's not just making me a better person, it's making me like Jesus. And so I need this. I need His forgiveness. Because in Christ, by the Spirit, we can make war against those things for holiness. We can rise, take up our mat, and walk in the newness of life He gave us. You are forgiven. Live like it. And maybe it begins by confessing to a brother or a sister, bringing into light what you've kept secret in the darkness. I mean, I'm up here, I, I try to be honest with you guys. I try really hard not to be the pastor on the pedestal. I want you to know that I have all kinds of things in my life. I want to be honest with you about my sin and my fighting, and I'm telling you even now, I am dull because of stuff in my life. And I do it to hopefully provide an example, but also because I need your help in my walk with Jesus. I mean, it took four guys to bring this man to the Lord. Why do you think you can do it on your own? Our greatest problem is sin, our rebellion and offense against God, whether we realize it or not, whether we recognize it or not. And Jesus is not only willing, but able to forgive, to heal, and to restore. Let other people be that, those champions who are undeterred and taking you to Christ. Get help with that. The Son of Man is the only God. He can do it. So let me finish with this. Over the past um, several months, I've been on a journey to know Jesus more. Um, it was inspired. I was reading a book by Timothy Keller, the late Timothy Keller. And in, one of the, in the book, he mentions, he tells a story, and I've told some of you guys this already, so I apologize for repeating myself. But he says, um, a guy comes up to him and said, Reverend or Pastor Keller, I can tell when you're not prepared. Because when you're not prepared, you quote a lot of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and Keller's like, you know what? You're right. Because Keller has been a lot of time studying Lewis, read all of his stuff, like mass, like he knew everything. He knew Lewis's mind, and so just whenever he was 
around, he just oozed Lewis. Just, it just came out. The point he's trying to make in the, in the book is that, man, we want to be like that with Jesus. To where no matter what, just we kind of ooze Jesus. For me, Keller is my Lewis. I tend to ooze Keller, but I want to begin to just leak Jesus out all over the place. And so I've been reading the Gospels, just trying to watch Jesus. What is he doing? What's he think? Oh, I want to know him so well that just naturally it comes out. But in this passage, like, I can't heal or forgive sins like Jesus can. But I can focus on people's deepest need like he does. I can know he is able to forgive and willing to forgive. And I can, knowing this, be confident, undeterred, and tenacious in bringing others to Jesus, just like those four friends who stopped at nothing to bring their friend to Jesus. They didn't say, hey, we can come back tomorrow. Hey, it's okay. We'll, we'll wait till everyone's gone. No, they're like, right now. This has got to get done. And so they destroyed property in order to make sure their friend got to Jesus. And so family, let's remember the terribleness of sin and the absolute greatness of Jesus' forgiveness. The Son of Man is God the Son. May that reignite a passion for the good news in our own hearts and fuel a passion to bring others to Jesus. Thanks for listening. Let me pray. God, we give you this, this time. And forgive me, Father, for not just reading your word, but I, I do pray that, that you would inhabit our meditations upon it. And Lord, that you would reawaken in us a sense of the terribleness of our sin. Forgive me, Lord, for making light of it, for playing with it, thinking it's not that bad. Forgive me for missing you and the greatness of your salvation in Christ Jesus. So restore that sense of the terribleness of my sin, but even more restore the goodness and the beauty of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on a cross for sinners like me. He, he can forgive. He is willing to forgive. Change us even today. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.